This episode of the Vine Pair Podcast is sponsored by the Prisoner Wine Company. Uncork something unexpected this holiday season and beyond with audacious, rule-bending wines that will impress even the most discerning wine drinker in your life. Head to theprisonerwinecompany.com to shop now. In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And in Vinepair's New York City headquarters, I'm Tim McCurdy. And this is the Vinepair Podcast. And uh, Tim, thank you so much for jumping on this Friday. We've got your baby to talk about. Well, our, our, our baby here, but yeah, definitely something that I'm uh, somewhat involved in or considerably involved in throughout the year. Yep, exciting one for us to chat about today. For anyone who's not aware, uh, Tim did not become the latest member of the broader Vinepair <laughs> Podcast family to actually have a child. We're talking about the top 50 spirits list, which uh, I think Tim is being a touch humble about. I, I think it's 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 if, if any one person is responsible for it, and obviously no one person is, but you put a lot of work into this. And as you said, and actually this is kind of where I want to start, for, for people who view these lists and, and view the top 50 spirits list as a thing that comes out in December, this is a year-long project for you, is it not? Yeah, definitely. This begins – actually – it begins for next year. It begins now. Um, so, yeah. you know, throughout the year, we're tasting spirits here at Vine Pair. We are tasting those specifically for our buying guys. They're called Buy This Booze. They're incredible, incredibly popular on the site. We kick off the year with some of the m- major categories. Bourbon's a big one. Irish whiskey around March. Tequila in April in time for, you know, Cinco de Mayo and all that. And then throughout the year, you know, we're looking at the, the, the largest spirit sectors and styles. And yeah, we're just tasting those throughout the year. And as we do that, we're starting to file away different bottles that we say, well, you know, this was new for us or this stood out this year or this was particularly interesting. And we might be thinking about those for the top 50 list. So yeah, definitely kind of 12 months in the making yeah and you know i think one of the most interesting things to me about this list in particular every year because obviously vine pair would run not just the the buying guides but some of the other top lists that are more i guess more specific and obviously between this and the wine list you have kind of lists that are broad in their nature and cover a lot of different styles and um, categories of of spirits so when you kind of are setting out to build this top 50 list or when the uh, the team is setting out to build this list is there a sense of do you do you think of hey we want to have some you know representation from all these different spirits categories are you kind of are there for lack of a better word almost like kind of quotas or do you how does that kind of come together right because it's hard to sometimes cross compare bourbon to gin to uh, you know unaged armagnac to whatever else shows up on the list <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think one of the important things, so it's an editorial list, right? So what this is not is these are the 50 best spirits we tried this year in terms of pure scores that they received when we reviewed them, right? Because I think that list would actually look very different. We want this list to have an editorial aspect that represents how America's drinking right now and also represents the most exciting things that have come across our desks, landed, you know, in our glasses. So if you look at this year's list, I think there's six bourbons on there and six tequilas. Those are the two most represented categories. And I think that very much 
is indicative of, you know, how America's drinking at large right now. And then, as you said, yeah, maybe those unaged eau de vie. Yeah, there's two on there because we had some really interesting ones that we wanted to share with folks. But if we put 10 on there, that would be really <laughs> kind of out of touch, even for some folks like ourselves or even myself that really do love those kind of spirits. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I think that something that can get lost a little bit in the conversation around this like this is that tension between what maybe, as you said, were the highest scored spirits versus things that tell a story. And and that telling the story part is interesting. And so maybe let's start there. What are a couple of the bottles on here that you think have some of the most interesting and or kind of unexpected stories? That's a great question. Uh, is that just too obvious of me to maybe start at one of these eau de vie? I no, don't know. No, come on. Give the people what they want. They want they want McCurdy's eau de vie takes. Well, look, I will point something out because I think it's indicative of a, a larger editorial theme of this year's list too. So I think it's a nice, I think it's a nice connector there. So at number twenty seven, we have Edenico. It's a mango eau de vie from Oaxaca, and. As we kind of noted in the write-up here, um, you know, I personally was someone who was lucky enough to travel a little bit in Oaxaca this year, uh, speaking with producers who make agave spirits, mezcal, in very, very traditional hands-on techniques. And one of the things that when you're in that environment, you start to see a lot of tropical fruit around just kind of growing in the wild. And a lot of those producers do credit those fruits and those trees with having a positive influence on their spirits as they're fermenting, oftentimes open air, which is great, and it's great for the mezcal or the agave spirit. But thankfully, mango and, you know, mango that's kind of uh, native to those regions, they're also turning to those fruits and fermenting them and distilling them and making just pure world-class eau de vie expressions of those. So... That's an unexpected one. I think that comes in at around, uh, it's pricey. It might be close to three figures, that one. It's definitely something you want to be sipping or just adding a very small amount to cocktails. But that's definitely an unexpected bottle right there. And I think one other thing that's interesting to me in this sort of unexpected category and actually connects to to Mexico is a couple of these, I don't even know you could maybe give me the, the exact explanation here, but a couple of these agave-based uh, capon they're not technically tequila or mezcal, right? They're they're sort of another category of of spirit entirely. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah. So I think that's, you know, great catch there. For all intents and purposes, these are mezcal. Yeah. In terms of the regions they're being made, what they're being made from, the techniques that are being used to create them. One of the conversations that's happening a lot right now in that world is whether or not to use the term mezcal on your label and actually whether or not you're allowed to. So as you well know, Zach, there, there are specific regulations that dictate certain standards your product has to meet or techniques that you need to use to be allowed to label your product mezcal and then you have these different categorizations of it you have like you know your ancestral and things like this and so you know there's all these different technical ways of labeling mezcal but you are seeing this growing movement right now of people that have either stepped away from using the term because they don't believe 
that some of the larger, more industrial products that are being put out there that are called mezcal, they don't believe that that represents the category and the style of spirit that they're making. Or sometimes they're using indigenous techniques that the government's not recognizing. Mm -hmm. So the government's saying that if you're going to make your spirit in this way, you can't call it mezcal. And they say, fine, we'll call it an agave spirit. And these are examples of that, right? And these are so these are two examples of that. So whether, you know, whether they're being forced to do so or whether they're choosing not to, but they are opting for the terminology agave spirit on their label. But for all intents and purposes, if you're looking for a fine sipping what you a spirit you believe to be or, you know, would associate a profile you'd associate with mezcal, those are them. Okay. And then, you know, you mentioned this sort of question about not a question about, but this is sort of an interesting thing for me about the list is the sort of conversation about some of these bottles and sort of the utility of them, like kind of how uh, a spirits lover might look at some of these bottles. So, you know, are there a few on here that you look at and say, you know, these are the bottles to get if you are a person who's really looking at their spirits collection at home as being sort of a, a palette for making cocktails right these are these are really great not that you can't enjoy them on their own but like these are cocktail ingredients first and foremost what are what are a few bottles that kind of fit that category so i'm gonna give one that's like kind of fairly obvious but i actually want to maybe explain it for in case some folks kind of you know how some folks might scroll through the list and they'll see stuff on there <laughs> but they might not read the right up yeah so i'm gonna give one that's kind of obvious and then one that i want to chat a little bit more about the first one though is tanqueray and I actually have had at least a couple of people text me and be like, wait, Tanqueray's on the list this year? Like, why is Tanqueray on the list this year? And I'm like, did you read the write-up? <laughs> and we wanted to use this as an opportunity. It has been a great year for the martini. And in the write-up, we noted that if you ask bartenders or gin enthusiasts, if you poll enough of them, what's your favorite gin for cocktails for the martini? You will tend to hear three answers. Ford's Gin beef eater and tanqueray now fords is a product that we love here we've mentioned before we've included high in the list before but it's not always the easiest to come by beef eater has really pissed off cocktail makers in recent years by dropping the abv a number of times and i think a lot of people feel that maybe they might be selling out a little bit there yeah. And so that leaves us with Tanqueray, which is a product where, for most parts, you can find it. You can get change for 30 bucks. You can find it everywhere. And I think gin is a category where you actually don't need to spend more than 30 bucks to get a world-class expression or the archetypal version of the spirit. And I think that's quite unique to gin. So wanted to point that one out there. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And I do think that I, you know, I'm one of those people who, when I the list came out the other day and I was scrolling through, I was like, huh, all right, look at this, Tangeray. Like, you know, I, I love the the idea behind its inclusion. And I think in a way, not only is Tangeray itself a, a, you know, a high quality product that, that certainly, you know, merits inclusion on a list like this, but it's a good reminder of exactly what you said, that, you know, gin does not necessarily have to be a, a spirit that you spend a huge amount of money on to get a really quality product, especially for some of those you know, kind of cocktail-focused mm -hmm. applications. That said, talk to me about a couple of the more exotic gins on the list. Not necessarily super more, much more exciting, but there's, you know, gin is this kind of fascinating category. I mean, I'm not, not telling you anything new. Uh, listeners mm -hmm. know gin and you are uh, good friends. But hmm. uh, what, are, what are a couple of on here that you think for people who do maybe want to branch out beyond, um, 
you know, something that is widely available like Tanqueray, but but don't know, but, you know, just want to try something different. Yeah, so I'd have to point to uh, number eight on the list there, Song Kai, Vietnam Dry Gin. You know, this was a bottle that we poured. So, the, you know, the process, we taste these bottles together as a team, editorial team and a tasting team. And I remember this being one of the first of the day that we all tried as a group and just seeing everyone's eyes light up when they tried it. So it's a Vietnamese gin. Um, every single botanical, apart from the juniper, which is sourced from Macedonia, comes from Vietnam. I believe the distillery has um, partnerships with various different highland communities. So we're talking about classic botanicals as well as more local ones. Um, and the effect is a gin that's citrusy. It's got a little bit of spice to it. It's highly botanical. But crucially for me, it's not one of those products that feels like a gin that's trying to be different for the sake of it and is trying to mm-hmm. go too far from London Dry. I think there's a definite through line between this gin and London Dry, but it's also something new. And 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 what I love about it as a product is it, it will work in classic cocktails, but it will also stamp its own personality on classic cocktails. And I think that one comes in at about 35 bucks too as well. So definitely not too pricey but maybe slightly harder to come by gotcha and you know kind of pivoting away from cocktails and looking more at people who enjoy their spirits need or at least um, you know kind of without additional ingredients obviously there's a lot of spirits on here that could that could sort of fit into this category it's obviously a big part of the uh, spirits landscape these days but you know maybe first uh, let's set whiskey aside for a moment because I think we're going to have to have a couple of whiskey conversations or, or, or bits here. But but looking at some of the other spirits on the list that are sort of your more kind of classic sippers, what are, what are some things that you want to draw people's eyes to? Yeah, so we're taking out a large chunk there if we are if we are moving away from the whiskey. <laughs> Don't worry, um, we'll, we will talk about the whiskeys too, I assure everyone. <laughs> no, definitely. I'm going to talk about the cognacs. Yeah. Actually, you know, it's funny because... There's a cognac that ended up making the list that we spoke about yeah. on a recent podcast recording. And that is the Through the Grapevine Treeho single cask. Um, so Through the Grapevine, it's this label. Basically, they work with producers in, obviously, the cognac region to source single barrels or small batches that they find to be particularly impressive. Um, and... This is a single cask cognac, super bright, super floral, really one of those spirits that challenges the notion. You know, we often think of cognac as when it gets really old, it starts to get like raisinated and prunes and heavy baking spices and French oak. This is not that. This is bright and fruity and tropical and and really sublime. So that's one of the ones that, you know, again smaller release product on the flip side there's another one on here the francois voyer it's the extra cognac which exists as this weird kind of official terminology but not really specifically defined so i if i'm understanding correctly it's like an exo in that it must be a minimum of 10 years aged but Oftentimes, producers will apply the extra cognac 
labeling term to bottlings that are of incredibly high quality and higher age. So an average of 15 to 25 year old distillate for the release. Again, there's there's only that minimum of 10. This one though, I believe is a blend of 20 to 40 year distillates, which, you know, if you were talking about scotch and 40 years old, you're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars for, for, for mm-hmm. the bottle there. Um, this is no this is by no means cheap um i think it comes in at a couple hundred bucks but you know again still somewhat attainable for most of us you know definitely a a splurge bottle but again highly aged cognac still has a lot of bright vibrant alive fruit but definitely some more decadent notes of of maturation there so yeah if we're talking about sipping spirits and we're not reaching for whiskey it was a particularly good year for cognac for us here at vine pair very cool and then before we do talk whiskey because i think that's a lot of what we're going to get to here i want to put in a sort of comment of my own that i think applies to this which is one of the interesting points of conversation around whiskey and around spirits in general i think in 2023 and certainly moving into 2024 is about proof and about the sort of relationship between proof and you know, kind of consumer demand and all that. And then a lot of the highly sought after, in particular bourbons and American whiskeys, but not exclusively, are clocking in at some pretty high hmm. ABVs these days. And and there are a couple of bottles on here that definitely fit that description. But I'm just wondering, kind of in a more broad sense, Tim, like, was that a trend that you noticed this year in not maybe not exclusively whiskey, but maybe particularly in whiskey of, you know, more and more of these, especially select bottlings being, you know, higher and higher proof? I think there's an interesting thing happening and it depends whether you're looking at scotch or American whiskey. Definitely a lot of these, you know, limited edition releases or annual releases, they are coming in very high. But then you do have some cast strength bottlings that we've included on here, such as the George Dickel 17, which I think comes in at 46% ABV, which is, you know, will make you do a double take. You're like, how is this cask strength? Uh, I'm not sure exactly on the science of that, but one of the things as a panel that we really do look to promote is that if we, and and I will be honest here, a lot of us, as, as you guys speak about on the podcast quite regularly, a lot of us are not regular cask strength neat drinkers. So if it made it onto this list at cask strength, it's because we felt that even if that's not how you normally drink something, you could appreciate this, but then if you were to add water, it would, you know, make it a lot more approachable or even improve the spirit the spirit itself. Then if you flip it to the Scotch side of things, you know, talking about pure numerical terms, one of the one of the themes from this year's list I think was that we definitely placed more importance on where we felt like producers were being intentional with the alcohol content of the spirit rather than resting on the age statement of the bottle. So I think a great highlight of that is the number five, uh, number four, sorry, spirit on the list. It's the Glen Glassow um, single malt, which is a non-age statement release. Um, But it does clock in at 50.5% ABV, and 
that bottling strength just felt perfect for the profile of the whiskey. And I would much rather see that a distiller or a master blender has said, we're worried more about the strength of this release than trying to capture consumers' dollars with a high-age statement. Um, that, to me, shows they're thinking about what they're doing. They care about it, and they care about us as drinkers. So that was a theme there for me. Just, again, you know, if we're talking about alcohol content. Yeah. And and since you've mentioned, let's start maybe with single malt and maybe, I guess, you know, scotch in particular – there's a few of them scattered throughout the list. Obviously, you mentioned the Glen Glassow already, but are there a couple of others that you want to uh, point out? And I'm fascinated by the single wall from the Hebrides because, like, as I think it says in the write up, like, there are like fewer people on that island than uh, maybe <laughs> bottles of this made. I don't know. It's wild. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, I think last time anyone did a, an official count, I think there's about 160 people on that island of uh, Rasse. I hope I'm not pronouncing that badly, considering I come from well, Scotland there. But, saying, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to correct you, that's for damn sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, intriguing release that one, especially, you know, containing a blend of peated and unpeated malt. The term approachable introduction to smoky whiskeys or peated whiskeys is something of a trope these days right it's like we always try and highlight these bottles that might get someone into peated and you know like someone shouldn't have to if they don't want to but i definitely do think that this was um you know a really good example of one of those where it's like lightly smoky and yeah this this island there it's the size of manhattan 160 people and yet the the fact that that single malt would make it all the way around the world and we got to try it. Phenomenal release, really, really interesting, really uh, delicious scotch. And hey, since we're talking about interesting single malts, here's my opportunity to say the phrase bog oak. <laughs> can, you, can you talk about the, the West Cork uh, Irish, uh, single malt Irish whiskey? Yeah, definitely. So bog oak, definitely new term for me as well. Um, so appetizing. Who doesn't think <laughs> of bogs and just like give me more? Yes. I remember the first time that I encountered this bottle myself and I was like, oh, this is uh, okay. Well, this is something new. So I believe the oak for uh, the casks used to age this, it's an Irish single malt. Those were uh, kind of cured and aged in peat bogs. So obviously going to have a smoky effect on the final aged distillate. And I have to assume that this is a product of the of the casks because it's not a character that I've encountered before in, you know, other types of single malts. But for me, that spirit had this really quite distinctive almost like sour apple, but you know, like stewed apple, stewed okay. apple baby food, but that might have like a slight <laughs> sourness to it. That that was my favorite as a kid growing up. So it's, it's gotcha. a, you know, it's a, a nostalgic one for me, but had that like really nice kind of almost fermented flavor to it. Um, so super interesting release that one. Yeah. And, and, and bog oak, uh, definitely a new term for me for 2023. Yeah. And then moving, um, I guess, back to American shores here for a little bit. Obviously, uh, several of the bottlings at the top of the list are American whiskeys, bourbons, etc. And, and we're going to get to those to kind of round things out. But any any others kind of higher up the list that you want to just shine some light on that you think were, you know, maybe obviously all of these, all of these uh, spirits are 
highly regard it and, and come with a strong recommendation. They wouldn't be on the list otherwise. But just anything on here, they're like, hey, you know, don't don't miss this in your rush to get to the top few bottles on the list. Yeah, definitely. And actually, this is one um, that I did want to highlight earlier, too, when you were talking about maybe something for your bar cart, maybe something for cocktail creation. Uh, this is going to do both. It's the Jack Daniels Bonded Rye. I think Jack Daniels, I think if you had not paid too much attention to what's been happening in kind of American whiskey in the past couple of years, you might be quite shocked to hear that. I think Jack has been doing incredible stuff recently. They've had experimental releases. They really have proven that, okay, we have the most popular American whiskey in the world, and we could just say... Why do we need to do anything else? Why do we need to innovate? We can just keep selling old number seven or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, But yeah. they have not only been innovating in terms of, all right, here's how we attract drinkers with a new flavored whiskey. And they certainly do that. But they're going after the, the whiskey geeks and the bourbon geeks with all these different releases. Um, so one of the most recent ones, it is an addition to their permanent bonded series line. It's a rye whiskey uh, it's bottled in bonds, so we know it needs to come from a single distilling season. It needs to be a minimum of um, four years old. I believe the first release aged for almost all of it aged for seven years old. This thing is on the market for 32 bucks. I forget off the top of my head how much rise in the mash bill. It's definitely more than the 51 percent that you'll get from most kentucky distilleries i want to say it's maybe around 63 percent but it has a definite rye character to it um but really incredible profile and like i said 32 bucks you can definitely mix this in cocktails it's really gonna you know fix you a, a fantastic um manhattan there sazerac but also you can sip this so I don't know. I'm, I'm continue to be blown away by the new releases from Jack Daniels. Very cool. And then, you know, to kind of start the to not to close things up here, but just to kind of hit on the the, the top of the list. So, okay, let's let's see here. Where do I even want to start? I almost, as much as I would love to talk about the Four Roses 135th <laughs> anniversary, given that, as you note in the text here, it's basically like, good luck finding a bottle. Um, I, let's maybe just leave that one there. You all can check out the list if you want to, to read about it. Um, and we'll, we'll come to number one here in just a moment. But I think actually for me, the bottle towards the top that I was most kind of most intrigued by just in kind of thinking about it, reading through the descriptions and all that was the the Maker's Mark Celerate, which comes <laughs> in at number 11, in part because of a, a thing you note, which is that like, after the long promised age statement uh, claims about releasing an age statement bourbon, they they, they didn't, uh, which is <laughs> which is funny. But just, you know, tell me about this, because I think Maker's Mark, to my eyes, and this is just my perspective, you know, you're more in this than I am in a lot of ways. I think Maker's Mark, uh, up to a, a couple years ago, had a sort of similar reputation to the way Jack Daniels did, as you described, which is like the sort of classic bottling, super popular, incredibly recognizable, but they probably didn't get a lot of credit for all the other stuff they did. And obviously that's flipped over the last few years, but just, you know, talk maybe talk about this one a little bit for people, because I think this one is one that you can go out there and get, although it is obviously pricey. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean... If, if you are listening to this now, you know, rush out there and yeah. get it. Because when this one came out, it was 
received very you know very well by the by the whiskey drinking community but yeah as you say jack uh, sorry as you say zach um maker's mark definitely not a brand that really did experiment too much you know you had the classic you know standard makers and then makers 46 and then they didn't really do too much you did see some cast strength releases um then they first really started to experiment with the wood finishing series which actually a couple of years ago did come number one um in one of our top 50s for whatever reason that series really remained slept on it didn't seem to really inspire the, the the bourbon collecting community in a way that i think the quality dictated it should so it was always something that you could get a very reasonable price sadly the seller aged appears to have replaced that line but mm. i think a lot of people will be happy because they're always going to disclose the age on these products like i said you know like you mentioned there it's not actually <laughs> on the label but it's very notable in that you know this is a majority of this blend is 12 year old and that can be tough in kentucky i know we want to just naturally think that older is better but in in certain aging conditions you're really going to see that just the wood tannins are going to take over and i think what really bowled us over about this this release here was that those wood notes didn't take over and not that drying astringency of uh, of the oak which can very easily take over it hasn't it's also a cast strength release but it's eh, 57.5 it's you know it's south of 60 which is kind of good personally whenever i've drunk this whiskey i've always added a few drops but i was actually surprised i i I didn't know whether this one again when we took it to the panel this was one of the ones that in the back of my mind i was wondering is this one that might make it to number one because i know yeah there's just been a lot of kind of fanfare around this release this year but uh yeah placed there at number 11 and i think it's kind of sitting quite pretty there and then uh, let's take one uh digit off that and go to number one and talk about the eagle rare and the 17 because i was i wouldn't say shocked by this like the, i i think one of the things that's fun for me about reading this list every year is you know it's never a given to me what's going to come in at the top you know whether it's producer or even style but you know i think of i, I think you can you know maybe especially given that eagle rare has gotten a lot of press for some of their other releases of late this is an interesting mm-hmm. one to have number one yeah, definitely. And I think that to that point about, you know, Maker's Mark there, yeah, this is named Eagle Rare 17. It's actually bottled at 19 years and three months old, which is, I believe, the oldest of any Eagle Rare inclusions in the Buffalo Trace antique collection. I forget how long it's been in there for, but this is the oldest iteration we've seen of it to date. Again, Age does not equate to quality, as you know, Zach, but I think a lot of us as drinkers just often make that connection, put two and two together, make five. Mm -hmm. So bottling a whiskey that is balanced at such an age, you know, we're approaching 20 years old here, that is a, a mean feat in and of itself. But then also doing so because those 19 years have developed complexity and nuance and 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 really take you to probably the top experience that you can enjoy as an aged spirits drinker where you just get those 
I don't know, you get those notes where you're like, I'm not even trying to identify what this is anymore. It's just, again, I put them in those two kind of uh, brackets of nuance and complexity. And it's kind of like, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to lower the tone here, but it's kind of like they say about porn. You know it when you see it, right? Or you, yeah. you know it when you taste it in this, in this instance, what those things are. But this is a, a phenomenal release. And one of the other aspects about this kind of editorially so well two things actually number one we enjoyed this because eagle rare when every year when buffalo trace releases its antique collection it's not the bottle that people rank as number one generally and it may be not even number two or number three this was our favorites of of, of us here at vine pair that were able to taste through them all this year this definitely was our favorite so that felt like a good fit from kind of a narrative perspective you mentioned too it's been a big year for eagle rare other releases they released a 25 year old one which i think came out at ten thousand dollars and is basically you know forget about it for most of us um but then i think this illustrates something that i i I do really want to note about the top 50 list which is you know this is not a buyer's guide and and we mentioned this in the intro that like look if you see any and all of these bottles in a store or on a list where you can have a pour, if you have the means, do so. You will love it. And and many of them you can easily come across, right? But this is more... There's going to be some that you're not going to be able to come across. This is part of the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection. It sells out... You know, it's very hard to get hold of. But mm-hmm. we wanted to celebrate the 50 best bottles are the 50 bottles that we enjoyed most this year. And this came out at number one and, and, and it would feel like unfair for bottles such as this. If we were to only say, well, if you can't find it, then we can't include it. Do you know what I mean? So I yeah. think editorially, I want to clear that up there too as well, because I think otherwise it, it, it could seem like maybe a, a, a slightly a head scratcher there. Yeah. I mean, there's always that challenge with, with stuff like this, where if you're looking at some of these one-off releases, um, you know, highly allocated or just small production spirits, you're in- inherently going to pick stuff that is has limited availability and or high price points or both. But, you know, again, I think people understand that, yeah, you can, you can find some, lots of things on here that are much more available or reasonably available. Um, and as you point out, like there's plenty of things on here that clock in it you know, under 40 bucks for a bottle, which is, you know, pretty reasonable. There's also some stuff that clocks in a lot above it. And, you know, depending on the kind of drinker you are and the kind of funds you want to allocate to your collection, uh, that that's going to determine what parts of the, which of the bottles on here you seek out if you seek any of them out. But speaking of seeking out, I want to finish with this, Tim. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk through this list with me. What was the one bottle that when the tasting was over, you were like, fuck y'all, I'm taking this home. <laughs> well, I'll let you into a little secret. Um, we keep all the bottles on hand here at the office because we do like to share them uh, if, You know, when friends, family, guests come by and, and share those pours. Um, however, <laughs> I'd be kind of torn here. I'd probably go for that mango eau de vie. I don't know. It was pretty special. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't know. It's it's the kind of thing I like to have at home to taste on friends, you know. Yeah. Well, and a great reminder of why some of the stuff is so exciting, because if for you is a connection to a trip you took, a place you've been, mm-hmm. and has a story to you that resonates in a way that 
someone who's maybe never been to Oaxaca is just going to, they can enjoy the spirit just fine, but it's not going to have the same, you know, emotional resonance uh, mm-hmm. to someone who's never been there, presumably, like me, uh, as it would to you. If I were if I were a smarter person, though, the answer I would have given you was the Four Roses 135th anniversary, because as we know, and you mentioned earlier, it's pretty much already sold out completely. You can't get it. And l- let me say, that is a fantastic, phenomenal whiskey. So again, if you're someone who has a bottle of that, be kind, share it with your friends. If you know someone share who has a bottle of yeah, share it with us, uh, or or if you happen to be in the vine pair neighborhood, maybe stop by. We might be we might be kind ourselves and give you a pour. Uh, Zach, any on there that you got to get your take? Any on there that you'd be most interested to try yourself, or that you're like, huh? Yeah, okay. So there are three that jumped out to me that we haven't talked about that I really want to highlight. Not that I've necessarily tried them, but I'm just intrigued by them. So the first is the Tempest Fugit Creme de Mocha. Coffee liqueurs to me are like. I still feel like I haven't found the one I'm looking for. Like Mr. Black is good. Kahlua is, you know, Kahlua. I, it's not, I don't love it, but it, but it has its place. Um, so I'm always intrigued because to me, one of the things that's so intriguing about this is coffee as a flavor. You know, there's so much variety and diversity and flavor profile in coffee. And to me, one of the problems that you run into sometimes with coffee liqueurs is they kind of get one note, um, you know, I mean, I guess maybe saying coffee flavored is obviously implicit in the idea, but I'm still kind of looking for a coffee liqueur that that hits brings some of that complexity to play because I actually think there's a lot of really interesting ways you can use a coffee liqueur in a cocktail that's not a that's not an espresso martini, that's not a coffee-based drink, you know, not a hot coffee drink, where with the right spirit it can really bring a dimension into a drink that is hard to find otherwise. So I'm, I'm definitely curious to check that one out. Um, interesting to see it check in here. And so that's, you know, definitely on my list of things to seek out. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked, we talked a little bit about uh, cognac, but you did include an, uh, I guess a technically an eau de vie or a blanche d'armagnac, a white armagnac. Uh, I mean, I'm a sucker for something that seems bizarre like that. <laughs> um, you know, no one, I don't know that the, not, don't know that the masses were clamoring for unaged uh, Armagnac, but I'm, <laughs> it's, it's got a snake on the bottle. <laughs> like no one, you don't really think of cobras in France, but hey, you know, whatever, we're down with it. So I'm intrigued by that one for sure. And then, um, boy, I'm trying to think like the, I mean, uh, I'm not a cat person, so I'm going to, and I've, I've had kind of mixed results with the Mars uh, whiskeys. Totally. A couple that I haven't loved. So that, that, I mean, hard to, hard to not be drawn to a bottle like that. Great labeling. Uh, I guess maybe if I were going to say one other thing, honestly, like the Oaxacan rum to soak, or I'm not sure exactly <laughs> uh, how to pronounce that one. I'll, I'll leave that one to you or to everyone else to correct me. But, uh, you know, rum from Mexico in general is a, you know, fascinating category. I think something that is we're going to see more and more of um, because there's, you know, it makes sense. Obviously, uh, rums from much of the rest of that sort of part of the the world are a big deal. But, you know, Mexican rum has never quite taken off, maybe in part because people, when they think of Mexico, think of agave, understandably. But uh, just a category the few I've tried uh, have found them to be often quite intriguing and complex and um yeah, it's kind of the only other ones. I will say the one bottle on here, besides I do have a bottle of Tanqueray at home. <laughs> um, the other bottle that I have that I actually just got very recently is the High West Midsummer Nights uh, Dram. Oh, yeah. Act I 11. saw you were drinking Or Midwinter, that. Not, not Midsummer Nights. That would be weird. A Midwinter Nights Dram. 
which is delicious. And uh, as soon as I saw it on here, I was like, oh yeah, I, I, I'm with I'm with uh, Tim and the team on that one for sure. <laughs> uh, having not tried most of these others, but having tried that, I can I can definitely say one of the one of the better whiskeys I've had of late. So yeah, no, those are those are some bottles that uh, jumped out to me. But you know, the thing that this just reminds me as someone who does you know certainly love spirits and taste a fair number of them is you know, not being around the vine pair offices, not being able to taste things that they come in. I'm like, man, there's so much cool stuff out there that I, I just have to rely on you and the team to turn me on to. And then, uh, you know, occasionally check a few of them out. Well, we'll hold on to them. So for your next visit there, Zach, and, 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 you know, I know you guys probably, I know, uh, this time of year, you typically like to, uh, maybe look forward at some point into 2024. You know, you mentioned that, uh, Mexican Oaxacan rum there, one of the things I, I, I wanted to say, um, you know, earlier and kind of in themes and maybe just to wrap this up and to look into 2024, I think one of my other takeaways from the list. Actually, can I give you two takeaways from the list this Please. year? Please. Um, so one, Mexican spirits in general. Uh, and I don't mean just look for the completely obscure, like, you know, I, I love a Sotol, I love a Bacanora, but yes, tequila and Mezcal are on fire. But I think one of the things that we highlighted this year is just the pure uh, breadth and depth of uh, of the quality spirits being made in Mexico right now, whether that's Eau de Vie, they also make phenomenal whiskey. We didn't include any this year. But I think that's a major theme. And that's also something that I hear a lot from bartenders and bar owners at the moment, that that's something that they're encountering as well. Okay. So that's one theme. The second theme we included a lot of those limited edition releases the you know the the annual bourbon calendar that comes up maybe from september through october i got to say i i think this was a particularly good year for those releases the the midwinter night stram that you mentioned zach i think it definitely has been a release that in recent years people are like maybe divided on it little book 7 is on here it's another one uh, the Parker's Rye was incredible this year. The introduction of the Makers, um, uh, you know, so a very, very good year. Because a lot of times people go out and chase those bottles, right? And they buy them because they're either tater bait or they want, you know, they're collectible. They want to hoard them. But if you got a hand on any of the limited releases that, that came out in American Whiskey this year, congratulations. Because I think <laughs> I think it was a particular 2023 was a good one for that. Well, Tim, as always, thank you so much. People who somehow don't know this, Tim hosts Cocktail College uh, for Vine Pair. Great, great uh, podcast about, well, shockingly, cocktails. So so for somehow you you have been listening to this podcast for all these years and you're not aware of that, I, I can't even explain it, but go check out Cocktail College. Obviously, check out the list. There's a link in the show description. And Tim, again, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Always, uh, always a blast. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. 
keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Visit theprisonerwinecompany.com to explore all of their offerings this holiday season. And remember, ground shipping is included on all gift set purchases.